Thank you, and good evening, everyone. Am I switched on? Seems to be some doubt. Would you like me to be switched? Don't answer that question. Yeah, I think we're... I think we're there. We know where you live. Me and my friends, we know where you live. Doesn't necessarily mean we're going to come, da- come round your house first thing in the morning and break your door down and steal your wife or your children. Please do. Um, <laughs> or your cat or your Xbox, but still we know where you live. In fact, those of you who count yourself as Christians, we know both your addresses. We know the address that you normally quote, that you normally write down on forms when you're asked where you live. And uh, even though you cite that as your usual address, actually, however humble or however grand your home is, is actually a temporary home. More like a tent, actually. And your other home, which the one where, that you actually talk less about, you're a bit more shy about, is actually not so much like a house as a palace or a castle or a temple. Yep, if you're a Christian, then you have two homes. You have dual residence, dual citizenship. Or have you never heard one of us, that is say me or one of my fellow preachers, for example, point you to uh, one of Paul's letters in the New Testament and the way he addresses Christians there. And he gives them two addresses for the price of one. So at the beginning of the first letter to the Corinthians, they are in Corinth. That's their earthly address. But they are also in Christ. That's their other. That's their permanent address. And you know, this theme of dual citizenship for God's people runs all the way through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. In Genesis we have Abraham described as a man who lived in tents, there's a temporary habitation, but looking for a city with foundations. In the last book of the Bible, Revelation, we have uh, towards the end, we have the earthly city in all of its godlessness and immorality, uh, symbolized by the name of Babylon, coming to nothing, falling, being destroyed. And then we have this new city, this new heavens and this new earth coming down out of heaven. So the dwelling place of God is with his people. From Genesis to Revelation then, this idea of a dual citizenship. But it's nowhere in the Bible clearer than in the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. And if you can make sure you've got chapter one of that book open with me, then I'd be most grateful. Daniel chapter one, page 883 and 884. We are about 600 years before Christ. 
the people of God, the nation of Israel, has been in serious decline, both morally and spiritually, for a long time. The northern tribes of Israel, over a hundred years before, have been conquered by the Assyrian armies and scattered throughout the Assyrian Empire. The southern kingdom of Judah limped on for some more years, but then, again, for the same reason, moral and spiritual decline, disobedience against their God who had given them so much. They are conquered by the, um, the new force on the block, the new kids on the block, the Babylonians. And they, uh, Jerusalem and its temple uh, would be destroyed. And the people of Jerusalem are carted away in two or three phases. First, among those to be carted away from Jerusalem to Babylon were some young men, Daniel and three friends. They were probably quite young teenagers, but picked because they were young males. They were good-looking, bright, well-educated the sort of young men that we have here this evening. Well, that some of us used to be. Um, they are carted off to Babylon. And so we have these two city, uh, cities, this dual citizenship. And the challenge for Daniel and his friends will be living now in Babylon, this earthly city, this Godless city, well, it has gods, it has idols, but doesn't know the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the one true and living God. How will we live in Babylon and not forget Jerusalem? How will we exercise our dual citizenship? And that's played out in other parts of the Old Testament, this tension. On the one hand, the prophet Jeremiah wrote to the exiles in Babylon saying, you're going to be there a long time. Build houses, plant gardens, raise families, get used to it, live there. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city in which you, are, you find yourself exiles. But on the other hand, the people of God lament, as in that great psalm, Psalm 137, you know, the one that says, how can we sing the songs of the Lord in a foreign land? So the tension then between settling in the earthly city and remaining faithful to the city of God is the tension that we find here in this chapter, I think, and is a tension that we ourselves have to think and work and pray about in our own Christian lives. So it's about faithfulness. Faithfulness to Jerusalem and all it stands for. Faithful to the word and the works of God. And faithfulness is perhaps a slightly religious word. You find it in the Bible. You don't find it a great deal in um, everyday language, I suppose, apart from maybe faithfulness in marriage. We talk about that. But think of words like loyalty or indeed trustworthiness. 
There was a recent poll uh, in which uh, people were asked, 2,000 people were asked, what they would like to be remembered for after they have died. Uh, was it they would like to be remembered for their good looks? No. Did they want to be remembered for their intelligence? No. Did they want to be remembered for their kindness? Not even that. What most people wanted, most of all, to be remembered for, for was their trustworthiness. So it is something we can all identify with, the idea of loyalty, trustworthiness, or to use the biblical word, faithfulness. Now, three things in our chapter about faithfulness in Daniel chapter 1. First of all, Daniel's faithfulness and that of his friends is being tested, sorely tested. In verses 3 to 7, obviously they have been carted off 500 miles as the crow flies from Jerusalem eastwards to Babylon. They are a long way from home. They have been rehomed. I wonder how far some of us are from where we were born. I wonder if there are some people here this evening who, well, I know there are some who have lived for a long time in other parts of the world, and maybe others who are actually born in other parts of the world and now find themselves in this strange place called Norwich. How does that feel? What tensions, what pressures does that feel? Not simply religious pressures now, but any but cultural pressures to be rehomed in such a drastic way. Jerusalem and Babylon did not compare. It was a completely new home for them. They were not only rehomed, they were re-educated. Did you uh, hear, as it was being read to us, that they were to be educated, these four young Israelites in the language and literature of the Babylonians. In fact, it was a three-year course in the University of Babylon. You think what effect to be transplanted into a strange and alien city, to be sent to the university there, to be taught their language and their literature. What pressure that would have on everything that they had known for the first few years of their lives. And they were even renamed. Do you see there in, uh, in verse uh, 7? Their Israelite names are changed to Babylonian names. All of the Israelite names point to God, the one true and living God. And all the Babylonian names point to the Babylonian gods. It is a complete, it is an attempt at complete reprogramming of these four vulnerable young men. The word Daniel has that little E-L at the end, referring to God, the God of the Old Testament, and that means God is my judge. His Babylonian name is Belteshazzar, and the bell at the beginning of that name refers to the biggest and ugliest and nastiest of the Babylonian gods, Marduk. So to see how thorough the pressures were on these young men not to be faithful to Jerusalem and to the faith in which they've been brought up uh, in, in Jerusalem. 
Now translate that for a moment to our own situation. Do we not feel similar kinds of pressures? Perhaps not so extreme, but pressures on our standing, on our faith as Christians, if we, call, if we count ourselves as Christians uh, tonight. There are so many things going on that would either contradict what we claim to believe in, or at the very least, push it to the edges, to marginalize it. What today's culture is saying to us is not so much, we don't want you to be Christians. What it's saying to us is, keep it to yourself. Don't bring it into the public square. Don't bring it into uh, political debate. Just because you're a Christian shouldn't make a difference to anything at all. Just privatize it. It's a private thing. Do you not feel that pressure? And the trouble you and I are in danger of getting into if we swim against that particular tide. And if we don't feel these pressures today, then maybe is it just because we're like the fish in the ocean, so pressed in by these pressures that we don't even feel them anymore. So I just want to put it to you for the moment that just as Daniel and his friends were under pressure to give up their faithfulness, so we are too. But what we next find in verses 8 to 14 is Daniel's faithfulness, even though it's being tested, is being demonstrated. Interesting, isn't the particular way in which uh, Daniel uh, decides that he will demonstrate his faithfulness to God. Uh, he and his friends are being served rich food and drink from the king's table. And Daniel says, very politely and very tactfully, but insistently, We'd rather not eat that stuff. We'd rather eat just vegetables and just drink water. Thank you very much. At first, the authorities say it's more than our job's worth to let you do that. So Daniel proposes a controlled experiment, the first ever recorded in history. <laughs> give us a chance, just give us a few days on this simple vegetable diet and we'll show you that we can look fitter and healthier and rounder and rosier than all these people who are eating all the rich food. And it works. As to why Daniel chose to draw that particular line in the sand, it's a bit puzzling. Now, why would Daniel ask not to be given the rich food and the wine from the king's table and asked to eat vegetables and drink water instead. Is it because of the nutritional side of things? Well, I, I think that would be reading our kind of ideas about nutrition um, way before their time. Nor do I think it's got much to do with the food laws that we find in the earlier part of the Old Testament. They didn't prohibit either, either meat or drink. What they did do... Uh, the word of God does do, is to um, 
be strongly against gluttony, overeating, and drunkenness, overdrinking. And maybe that's the secret to why Daniel chose this particular thing to object to. Object to. Because after all, eating food and drinking either wine or water is not simply a, a, an aspect, a, a matter of nutrition, is it? There's a social and a cultural aspect to that. If we invite um, somebody round for a meal or go out for somebody for a drink, it isn't just because I feel a bit dehydrated. <laughs> it's because I'd like to talk to you. I'd like to share some time with you. Now, eating the rich food and drinking the wine from the king's table was leading in a certain direction. And if you want to know where that direction was heading, then you need to move on to chapter 5 and the famous story of Belshazzar's feast, where these very articles that Nebuchadnezzar pinched from the temple in Jerusalem were now being used to be filled up with wine to make people drunk. Now, it seems to me, and it's only a guess, but it's my best guess, it seems to me that what Daniel and his friends were doing was objecting to that flow, to that tendency, to that trajectory. We'll keep ourselves apart from that kind of partying, that kind of debauchery, the kind that leads to not only to drunkenness, bad enough in itself, but to sacrilege of God's things. That's my best guess as to why he chose to draw that line. But again, back to us. What sort of line do you think you may need to draw in the sand this coming week? That was Daniel's line. What might be the line for you and for me? Supposing you work in an office and uh, at the beginning of the week tomorrow, a new boss moves in. And by Wednesday, the boss is saying to you, if so-and-so rings, tell him I'm not in. What will you do? Will you draw a line there or not? Or supposing you're a returning student and you're finding your year two or your year three um, uh, essays a bit, more, a, a bit more testing and a bit more taxing. And so you've got a friend, and you and your friend are both having to produce or to write an essay on the same topic. And uh, it's getting near the deadline. And your friend says to you, look, we're both struggling a bit with this. Uh, we've both drafted something out. Don't feel very happy about it. You show me your draft, and I'll show you mine. We'll kind of pool our best ideas. You know that's against your college's or your university's policy about collusion. Will you draw a line there? Or perhaps in the, uh, in the coming week, you don't object to anything. You just may have an opportunity to let it be known, again, maybe as a new student or a new employee somewhere or somewhere in your neighborhood, to let it be known that you're a follower of Jesus Christ. doesn't necessarily need to be a big deal. Some of you know that I like to, um, to trek, and I've been on several trekking uh, uh, expeditions uh, with uh, uh, two Johns from this church, John Malcolm and John Cooper, who many of you know. And uh, when we've been on our treks, um, s- uh, pretty soon when we sat down in a, one of these mountain huts and this kind of thing, 
somebody would say to us, uh, so how do the three of you know each other? Now we have an opportunity to draw a little line there and sort of say, well, actually, we go to the same church. And on occasion, that then has just opened a little door for something more detailed in terms of discussion, email correspondence, and so on and so forth. That necessarily have been a big deal. But will you have an opportunity to either have a need to, to say no to something or actually to say yes to something, to draw your line in the sand and to show in some small way your faithfulness. But now we come in the uh, end, towards the end of the chapter to Daniel's faithfulness having been uh, tested and demonstrated. Now we find it's rewarded in verses 15 to 21. At the end of 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men and so on and so forth. And they found favor with the king. The king found them 10 times wiser um, than all of his other servants and so on. So they're given prominent and privileged positions in, uh, in the court of King Nebuchadnezzar. So their faithfulness has been rewarded. They haven't had their heads chopped off. They actually find themselves promoted in Nebuchadnezzar's court. And then in the very last verse of the chapter, there's something sort of hiding between the two lines here. And Daniel remained there in Nebuchadnezzar's court until the first year, or in, in Babylon, until the first year of King Cyrus. Ho-hum, we might say. Actually, that's hugely significant. Daniel has been taken to Babylon right at the beginning of a 70-year period of exile, during which Nebuchadnezzar is no more. Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom of Babylonia is no more. Daniel is still there. Daniel sees the beginning of the return from exile, back from Babylon, back to Jerusalem. We read about the rebuilding of the temple and the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem in books like Ezra and Nehemiah. Daniel certainly finds himself rewarded both in the short term and in the long term. But are we therefore saying that faithfulness will always be rewarded in these kinds of ways. That if you are faithful in your school, in your college, your university, in your workplace, in your neighborhood and so on, if you are faithful, will people always think well of you? Will you always get your heart's desire, just as Daniel did, to see the return from exile? Well, we need to just go a little bit further for a moment than this first chapter into the book of Daniel just to see how things are going to pan out. By the time we reach chapter 11, we know that some of God's people will fall by the sword or be burned or captured or plundered. No, it won't always fare well for God's people in this life. They won't always be rewarded by other people's favor and by promotion and so on. But in the very last verse of Daniel we have this extraordinary promise from God that applies to Daniel and to all God's people. Extraordinary, because it's unusual for any 
passage in the Old Testament, the part of the Bible written before the coming of Christ, to be so clear about these two things. You will rest and you will rise. You will rest and you will rise. And that can and does apply to all of God's people. So I thought about this thing, about the extent to which God blesses our faithfulness in this life and the extent to which he promises greater eternal blessing in the life to come has, I won't say haunted me, it has thrilled me as I've um, reflected on it and, and, and prayed over it. As the Apostle Paul says, if for this life only we have hoped in God, we would be, of all people, the most miserable. No, we need to learn to face our sights firmly on the life to come while never for a moment neglecting the present life. But all of this, all of this talk now about God's eternal reward for the faithful ones means that we have to just look well beyond Daniel to one who was utterly faithful in every way. There is a so- an old song that says, Dare to be a Daniel. And that, you know, is not the main message of the book of Daniel. Be like Daniel. Yeah, great, be faithful, as Daniel was. But we can't stop there. Because the Christian life is not about what we do and our faithfulness to God. It is first and foremost about God's faithfulness to us in Christ. So let me finish by pointing you to the faithful one who was tested in every way, tempted in every way like we are, and yet perfectly without sin. Faithfulness demonstrated by his obedience to that most painful and shameful of deaths on the cross. And then rewarded as God raised him from the dead and ascended him, uh, ascended Jesus to his right hand in glory. Time does not, uh, time is too short to tell of the rewards that Jesus had for his own faithfulness. But I want to mention one as I finished. Part of the reward of Jesus Christ for his faithfulness to his heavenly father, part of his reward is you and me. Jesus is the head of his church. Jesus does not wish to consider himself complete unless he has his people with him. Here am I, quotes the letter to the Hebrews, uh, uh, putting words into Jesus' mouth. Here am I, says Jesus to his father, and the children God has given me. You and I are part of his reward. And as we gather around this communion table uh, this evening, we, sh- we sim- don't simply remember, we don't simply even celebrate, but we have fellowship and communion with that living Jesus Christ. And as we do so, it's heaven on earth. It's living a part of the life to come here in this life. It's being partly already in Jerusalem, even while we seek to live faithful lives in this place, this Babylon, this Norwich. Let us pray. 
Our gracious God, we thank you for the faithfulness of Daniel, which points to the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. May we receive gladly and afresh as we remember his life and his death, as we share in the elements, the symbols of his broken body and his shed blood. And may we rejoice in him and out of sheer love and gratitude seek to be ever more faithful to him and his good news and his life-giving death in the days to come. Amen.